This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, neuroscientist Lisa Genova discusses how our memory works in her book, Remember, the Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. Lisa, it's great to see you. This is is going to be so much fun. Yeah, yeah. But I have to start out by saying, not cool. You're a fiction writer. Why are you invading our space with with nonfiction? You've already you've you're already the queen of fiction. It's like you've you've got this gigantic kingdom, and you, it's not enough for you. You need to come over to to the nonfiction writers world and just just demolish us as well. What, what's what's oh, going on here? Please says the man who writes nonfiction has a podcast and now <laughs> is a, and a, a famous musician. <laughs> Uh, no, but I, I did want to start out by asking you, you've, you've written, five, I think it's five novels, right, before this yep. book. Yep. And, uh, and to, to say you've carved out a niche is, is, a, is a great understatement, and we'll get to that in a second. But, but um, why nonfiction? I mean, what, 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 what finally tempted you over to nonfiction? And I'm also wondering, is this, uh, do you see this as very much a, a blip in your long fiction writing career? Or do you see yourself, you know, now more fluidly kind of going back and forth? Mm. So, yeah, the reason for writing this, the intention behind this was, you know, I've been talking about Alzheimer's around the world for over a decade now. And that's super important work to me personally. I know it is to you as well. I'm really trying to help folks understand this disease, be less afraid of it, um, encourage earlier diagnosis and resources for care and research. It turns out, though, that every time I spoke about Alzheimer's, the conversation eventually shifted to memory and forgetting in general. And I found that folks over the age of 40, definitely over the age of 50, are all really kind of freaked out, stressed out, worried, ashamed of everyday moments of normal forgetting, but they don't know it's normal. So they think that you know, especially after a certain age, every time I walk into a room and can't remember why I went in there, or I can't come up with the name of the actor in that movie I saw last week, I can't remember the name of the movie. I went to the store to buy milk and I came home with a bunch of groceries and no milk. People start to worry that this is a sign of impending dementia, especially if they have a loved one with Alzheimer's. And so the intention became You know, I can, we have enough to stress about in this world. If I can take this off of people's plates, like you don't have to stress about these things. This is a normal outcome of how our human brains are designed. And it's very distinct from forgetting due to Alzheimer's. So I just wanted to help folks understand sort of the owner's manual. Like this is how your brain works to remember things. This is why it normally forgets. These are the things you can do to protect it and improve it. And and here's what you have to really worry about with respect to Alzheimer's. But most of what everybody forgets every day, whether you're 25 or 65, is totally normal. Okay, so let me just do one follow-up on my question before we get into the actual book book content. Mm-hmm. And that is, you've written five books, which have pretty, in, in a lot of detail, explored what these various neurological diseases are about, including still Alice with Alzheimer's. So why did you have to switch over to, to non, what, what was necessary about coming over to nonfiction since you do not you do fiction, you're so, you know, you're such an artist at it. Oh, thank you. And I am gonna go back to that. And I, I don't, I'll never say that I'll never go back to nonfiction. I, I'll say I enjoy writing fiction a lot more. There's just so much more room to play and run. Right. Um, 
so my next my next book will be a novel about a woman with bipolar disorder um and i'll probably write about addiction um after that but I, I i reserve the right to dip into nonfiction again <laughs> because i think that this served uh, the nonfiction platform served a really great vehicle in this case because i wanted this to feel like a friendly accessible conversation with a friend who just happens to be a neuroscientist and can explain this to you. So I've been doing this in person, sort of one at a time. Like people will come to me sort of confessing, you know, they're almost looking to get diagnosed in this very conversation. They're saying like, Lisa, this is the things that have been happening to me. I, you know, I can't remember names and I have to write everything down that I, if I would need to do something later, if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget. And there you can see the fear rising as if they expect yeah. me to let them know that, yeah, you've got Alzheimer's, but they don't. And I explain to them what's going on and I can see the relief. Yeah. And so I just, this book was, it was very clear that, that there's a need out there to understand our everyday lives, the everyday moments of forgetting why that happens and what to be concerned about and what not to be. And also to help like, oh, if you've walked into a room and can't remember why you're in there, I can actually help you figure out why you're in there and at the same time not panic about it. So it really was just um, a mission to sort of, you know, help everyone who's worried about memory worry about the right kinds of things and let go of the rest. Right. Well, I mean, this resonates with me on several different levels, as you can probably understand. First of all, just as a person, I, I don't think there's any person over 40 and I'm, I'm 54. So I've been living, you know, with this with this uh, with this uh, anxiety for, for a bunch of years now of, of just having that that not just one panic moment, but just a, a never ending series of of uh, deep concern moments where is what I'm forgetting normal forgetting? Is it just getting older? Is it just me being paranoid about getting older? Or is there something, you know, that I should be worried about here? And uh, and even though I'm now kind of trained in, in, in being able to understand the difference, even I still like experience that, 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 that feeling. And then the second thing I, I resonate with just strongly is this, as you say in the book, and as you've said here, um, literally you, you go and you do all these book talks, uh, in my case about, about Alzheimer's disease, in your case about Alzheimer's and all these other diseases, and and what do people want to talk about as soon as you stop talking is they want to talk about their own, this, this fear that they have personally, and they want to be reassured, they want to, or they want to be told, oh, you should go see a doctor. They want to, like, you're their conduit to, like, you know, to the medical community in a way. So, like, just putting, trying to put those answers down in a book form, and I found this book just so personally reassuring and, and answering a lot of the questions that I had and and that I, but also that I had started to answer in my mind for my research, but hadn't really, you know, put down. So, so thank you for that, first of all. You're welcome, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think until it's articulated, like you may have a sense of like, man, I can't, I can't find my phone or I'm misplacing, like I, I can't remember where I put my phone and I can't remember where I put my glasses again. And like, man, what's going on with me? And I think the misconception is to jump to, oh, there's something going on with my memory. Like my memory's failing, it's it's getting older, it's impaired, what's happening? But your memory probably was never even involved in any of these instances because you can't create a memory if you don't pay attention for the to the information in the first place. So very likely we live such distracted lives. So we're probably 
thinking of the very next thing you need to do and you're not paying attention to where you put your glasses down. And then later when you can't find them, this isn't a, this isn't a failure of memory. This is a symptom of distraction. Right. Really understanding that like, oh, when I can't find my phone, it was probably because I didn't pay attention to where I put it rather than jumping to, oh my God, my memory's failing. So I think just really like, like you said, like laying it down on paper and seeing it explained can really help. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about what I think is the very biggest idea in the book, or at least the the, the idea. Everything is narcissistic, so this is how I see the world. But um, the, the, I, and I'm so glad you spent a, a bunch of time on this, which is this kind of before you before you get to the before we get in this conversation to the 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 you know the the ins and outs of actually how memory works and 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 different kinds of memory and things like that. The big idea for me that. Um, we are not designed to remember every detail. In fact, if we were to, to design to remember every single detail, we would not have the, the kinds of powers of intelligence and kind of broad thinking that, that we do have. So we are designed to forget most, the vast majority of the details that we come across. And in fact, there are examples of people who are encumbered by remembering too much detail. So I, I, if you could just kind of talk about like in, in, a, in a big way, kind of how our brains are designed to not remember most things. And then we can kind of get to, uh, you know, what, what we are designed to remember and, and what's working and what isn't working. Yeah. So again, it's really helpful to actually take some time to think about what we really do remember and what we don't. Because people will talk about like, I don't remember as much from 10 years ago or five years ago. And they sort of worry about like, wow, I'm forgetting a lot of details from the past. And I would argue that you actually don't remember your most recent past. So, hmm. uh, you know, today is Monday, a week ago, Monday. Can you tell me all the text messages that you sent and received? What'd you have for lunch? Tell me about your morning shower a week ago. Like we don't remember. So our brains are designed to remember what is meaningful and what is emotional. Kind of full stop. Mm -hmm. um, surprising goes in there because surprising elicits emotion. Um, but what's meaningful to us, what matters, we remember and we forget what isn't. So most of our lives are spent doing things that are kind of routine, habitual, day to day, same old, same old our brains don't remember same old, same old. So we spend much of our days doing the same thing. So we get up, we get dressed, we brush our teeth, we have coffee, we sit on a million Zoom calls, where now our days are even shrunk even more, right? We don't go as many places. So if you're feeling fuzzy from the past year, if you're feeling a little foggy about like, I don't know, this year's a big blur, it's because we didn't get out and do as many things. Not right. little, you know, it wasn't different. It was the same day to day and our brains forget what's routine. Um, so that's kind of most of our most of our days. So if you want to remember more of what happens in your life, you got to get out of your routine. You got to put new things in it. So things that are new and meaningful and emotional, things that matter to you, that stand right. out, that's what we remember. Right, all those vacation days in, in cities that you never go back to, that you can remember very specific things because the context of that day was like no other context in, in your life. 
right. And we tend to talk about the things that were new and meaningful and, and exciting to us, right? So we yeah. have the chance to revisit that memory and repetition of a memory helps us remember it. It reinforces the strength of those neural connections. So when I did something really cool and exciting, I'm going to tell my friends and family about it again and again. And that re, re reminiscing helps reinforce the memory too. All right, so this is, let's dive into neuroscience for a second. You are literally a neuroscientist. You have a PhD in, in neuroscience. Um, and you're basically Superwoman or Wonder Woman or whatever. I mean, this, you've got it all. So, um, so um, my question is very specifically that you just said that uh, most of the memories we remember are either meaningful or emotional. I mean, that's kind of, that's what we're designed to remember most of. Is the reason that we remember those because of that emotional moment, you know, the challenger blowing up or whatever, and we're right there and it's seared in our memory. Or is the reason that that's the memory and that's the event that we keep going over and over and over in our heads and in conversations and things like that, which, or is it both? And, and kind of how does that work in the biology of our brains? Mm -hmm. It's a bit of both. And so right okay. now, actually, we're talking about a specific kind of memory, which is a, a memory for something that happened. And that's different biologically from the memory of stuff you know. So uh, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second, or you know, my birthday, stuff you know. Um, the memories for how to do things, so how to type, how to ride a bike, how to drive a car, um, that's different. <clears throat> memories for stuff that you plan to do later. So right now we're talking about the stuff that happened, which is called episodic memory. And episodic memories, memories for the stuff that ha happened are really um, influenced and in enhanced by, by emotion. So if something happens and it's emotionally neutral, I might remember it. But if, if it's scary, if it's exciting, if it's joyful, if it's tragic, if there's a, an emotion built in that at the same time, that will contribute to that emotion being very strong and long lasting. So biologically, that's because there's a part of our brain called the amygdala. It's part of the limbic system. And that has a, a lot of direct connection and a lot of influence over the hippocampus, which is also in our limbic system. But the hippocampus is a structure that is required for the formation of any new consciously held memories. And so because of their relationship, we have like a very tight bond between emotion felt in the, the amygdala and hippocampus, which is busy um, connecting the, the different aspects and elements that, that contain a, a, a remembered moment or a remembered experience. So on the one hand, emotion strongly influences whether we're going to remember something or not. Um, on the other, if it's emotional, we're also going to talk about it, right? Because right. that's the stuff that that matters. That's the stuff that gets our attention. Again, it's sort of like, you know, it's it's a, a positive feedback loop here. What do we pay attention to? Whoa, that was a big emotion attached to that. That gets your attention. At you can't remember something if you don't pay attention to it. Right. So if I'm if I'm driving from Boston to Cape Cod, I cross I cross the Sagamore Bridge. I've done this thousands of times. I might be 10 miles past the bridge and suddenly think, did I already go over the bridge? I can't remember. I can't right. remember. 
I can't remember driving over a colossal four lane bridge because I never right. paid attention to it. But if something, you know, if someone were standing on that bridge about to jump off, if there had been a car accident on the bridge, um, if I don't know, if someone called and there was like amazing news, someone's getting married and I happen to be on the bridge, <clears throat> I will remember driving over the bridge that day. Right. So motion really helps us pay attention, which also helps us form memories. Right. And I, I'm, I'm, this is the part of the interview where I'm not sure where to go because there's so many different things I want to ask you about memory. But I, I, the, the top of mind right now is I think you talk about in the book um, the how you remember things that actually didn't happen. Can we talk about how that happens? Because uh, that's another huge misunderstanding about memory is that people have vivid memories from long ago and some of the stuff they remember has been stuff that's been kind of wound into the story that didn't actually happen the way they remember remember it. No, it, it might not have actually happened at all, or it might have happened, but you didn't experience it. You're borrowing from other people. So let's back up. So okay. memories for the stuff that happened. Again, unlike stuff you know, stuff you know how to do, stuff you plan to do later, are very vulnerable to editing mm. and change. So the stuff that happened that you remember is probably wildly inaccurate. And people have done all kinds of studies of eyewitness testimony, um, uh, people who were interviewed just after the space shuttle Challenger blew up or just after 9-11 and about where you were, who you were with, what what do you remember? And then interviewed again a year later, two years later. Right. And their memories are totally different mm. two years later versus right after. And then actually, these are co tend to be college students too. The, um, there's a great study out of Emory of, of college students. So these are young people, not people who have you know aging brains who might be you know memory impaired. These are 20 year olds interviewed immediately after the space shuttle Challenger. Who were you with? What were you doing? What'd you, what'd you see? How'd you feel? Interviewed again two years later their answers don't match, like almost at all. And then shown their original handwriting, they look at that and think, well, that's strange. Like that can't be right. They actually will stick to their newer false memories. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's, and so it's, it's humbling. And then eyewitness testimony is wrong much of the time, which is yeah. kind of frightening given how much we rely on that to convict folks. Um, if I were to show you a video, this was done by Elizabeth Loftus, a video of a car accident. And then I ask you afterwards, um, how fast were the cars going when they when they contacted each other? You'd give me an answer, say 30 miles an hour. If I instead said, how fast were the cars going when they crashed or when they smashed into each other? You would probably say they were going faster. So here's the deal. What happens after we remember something influences how we later restore it. So we can only capture what we pay attention to in the first place, right? So if I witness something, if I experience something, I I not and my brain's not a video camera. My memory's not recording a constant stream of every sight and sound I'm exposed to. I'm only going to capture a certain part or slice of what actually happens. So to begin with, my memory is biased. And distorted from what some you know what someone else sees, right? So you know, uh, a 54-year-old man witnessing something might notice different elements than a 22-year-old woman. Hmm. So your memories of the same event are going to differ to begin with. 
Now here's the weird part of our brain. So every time we recall a memory for what happens, we have the ability to add, subtract, change it, bring in new information. So if I, if it's after 9-11, um, I then watch news reports and I might incorporate some of that information into what happened immediately after. If I'm on the phone with someone, maybe what she says and what she notices influences what I remember. Um, I might leave some information out. I might, to make the story sound better, I might add, add some pieces of information to connect the dots. But here's what happens. Whatever has happened in the retelling or the reminiscing then gets stored over. It rewrites. It, it, it's like saving in Microsoft Word. It, it saves over the original memory. Right. The original memory is gone. And so now it's like the telephone game. The more I retell this memory, the further and further it has the opportunity to migrate away from what originally was my first memory of that event. Years later, I'm likely to be really, really far, <laughs> far off from, from what I originally experienced. So if you have siblings, this is like a really cool exercise. If you have brothers and sisters, try, remember a holiday from your childhood or remember a, an event that all of you witnessed. So I could, you know, my brother Tommy, remember Christmas when I was 10 and you were, when I was 10, you were eight. And I might say, you know, I might have a memory of what we got. Oh, we got skis and we did this. And he might have a completely different memory of that exact right. same day. And so we don't know who's the, the, what I try to help folks understand is you actually don't know. You can't know who's right and who's wrong in these instances. And you likely both have misinformation in your own memory. All right. So now there are two follow-ups to that, yeah. and I don't know which one to start with, but I'll, I'll go with the, the first one that I thought of. Uh, why? why? I mean, our brains are, are the most fantastic machines ever invented, and, and it's probably going to take a while for that, for that to change, even with all the incredible machines we, we invent um, these days. Why would uh, evolution design a brain that could change the way we actually remember something that happened that would and, and would give us the would make us unable to know whether that memory is a true memory or something that was then subsequently kind of edited in that 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 I don't I mean I can understand how we want to form a big intelligent picture and we want to keep improving on that intelligent picture so you get a new piece of information you you make it more accurate I guess but but to not be able to know in your own head whether this is a true memory or something that you changed along the way, and or to, to even to make it worse, as you said, to to think, to insist that it's a true memory, and even when you're looking at evidence that it's not. What's up with the design of our brains that makes that possible? Yeah. So the first obvious answer for me is just that our our memory system isn't perfect. It's so fallible. I mean, this is not the only instance where our brains are not designed well for remembering everything. So there's mm -hmm. this, you know, strange paradox with memory, right? So on the one hand, if I decided I wanted to memorize 100,000 digits of pi, my brain's capable of that. Like, I can do that. You can do that. Anyone can. A, man, a Japanese engineer at the age of 69 memorized over 100,000 digits of pi because he wanted to. So mm. we can do the, We can learn new languages. You can play guitar and write songs. Like we can learn and memorize and, and remember anything. 
and it's going to forget, you know, to take your vitamin later or to return the library book. Like it's this strangely like, you know, most astounding piece of equipment ever imagined. And it's a total dunce. It's going to make like bizarrely simple mistakes. And so I don't, ex you know, I don't have an exact answer for you, but I can also imagine just sort of, you know, evolutionarily wise, like, it's a, our memories for what happened are somewhat collaborative. It's not dependent on just you. So like I said, I can only remember what I paid attention to. And so I'm gonna miss a large portion of what actually happened just from the beginning. Like I'm gonna only have noticed, you know, people talk about uh, eyewitness testimonies if there was a, a bank robbery. You know, if I'm the only person who witnessed what happened, I might have only seen the gun, but not the gunman's face because I was so, you know, focused on the thing that could kill me. Mm. And I missed his face altogether. But someone else who was maybe not in the line of fire could have seen his face. So maybe this ability to collaborate on memory right. helps us get a fuller picture for what happened. And as a byproduct, we eventually can't tell, you know, what was originally my experience versus someone else's versus stuff we just made up because we've got great imaginations and we're great storytellers. Our brains right. love story. Um, anything that we can wrap a story around and a story that makes sense, our brains remember that. Right. Very so so the, the viewer will note that I almost stumped you. Even I tried and, and I, I couldn't, but I, I came closer than, than some maybe. All right, so my next follow-up to that, to this little micro subject is, is there any way for us to know as we're remembering something that's important, if we really care to know, like let's say we are on the witness stand or whatever, is there any way for us to know or to have hints about whether something is a true accurate memory or it's something that we've edited along the way? Or do we just need to give up and just acknowledge that whatever we're remembering is simply the story we have taught ourselves to tell. Yeah, I honestly think it's the best we can do. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement. And again, there's, you know, Elizabeth Loftus is a psychologist and there are others out there who are sort of pounding the pavement, pavement with this message that our episodic memories are so fallible. They can contribute to a case and making, creating a picture because obviously we, we don't need to throw it out entirely. We, you know, we, if we witness something, if we experience something, there is, there is certainly element of truth in there. There's certainly, hopefully there's some, it doesn't distort so wildly that it's just completely off. Um, but it's subject to all kinds of errors. And so to just hold someone's testimony as this is truth um, is dangerous. So I think it's a piece of the puzzle. And I think that, you know, for example, if someone, if you keep a diary and you write down what happens on, on your days, you're more likely to remember both what you wrote down and other elements because what you wrote down can be a cue and a trigger for other pieces of the of what happened that day. Um, so it helps it helps you um, it helps unleash the rest of the memory if you keep a diary. So those can be more accurate. But on the flip side, they can also be less accurate because if I write something down, it can also limit what I remember to only what I wrote down, and I, I can. I've emphasized that so much that I might miss some other things that that had happened, but I've now 
erased that from the memories. It's so far gone because I've now restored and revisited only this aspect of what happened that the other pieces have gone away and you can't convince me that they they actually occurred. Mm. Tricky. Um, eyewitness testimony, I think, is is incredibly flawed and it, I don't think anyone should ever be convicted based on eyewitness testimony alone. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Neurobiologically, that's just, that's that's an injustice. And it's, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the law enforcement community does by and large understand that now, right? We've gone kind of through a revolution in the last 20 years where at least most professionals, I mean, Please correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like this is a story I have been, I'm, I'm in the memory field, so I so I know about yeah. this, but I would imagine that most, at least responsible judges and attorneys know this fact. Yeah, but it, you have to back it up from there because I don't, I don't know, and I would doubt that most police officers are trained in the influence of their language on what someone's going to remember. Right. So like the example I gave of if I show you a simple video and I change one verb in my question to you after you watch the video. How fast were the cars going when they contacted each other or smashed into each other? I'm going to change your memory for what you saw based on that verb. So if I'm a police officer and I'm questioning a witness, I'm interrogating someone or if I'm at, talking to someone after, what did you see? My language can very much influence what the person will say they saw and then therefore what they consolidate into memory of this is what I saw, this is what I believe I saw. So the language of, of what we use to describe what happened will influence our future recollection of what happened. So when the interview, this interview ends, we can do a, we can uh, both rush, we'll really politely say goodbye, and then we'll both rush to call our agents to see who can be the first to get a book, a book proposal going on eyewitness testimony. Um, <laughs> we can do that. I'm writing about my, my agent's on speed dial, so I hope yours is too. <laughs> uh, so, all right, so, so back to, back to the book and back to the, to the kind of meat of the book. So you, um, what is more important to you? Is is it more because you do you do a bunch of really interesting things in the book? Is it to kind of reassure people? I mean, you talked about that reassurance being kind of the the your your entry into this book, and 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 that kind of pervades the book to kind of make people make people who are going through normal things be under, understand that this is actually the way our brains are built, and this is this is what we're supposed to be experiencing. And that in itself is, is, is huge medicine. But then you get into helping people actually understand uh, the, the, the differences, the, 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 the workings of memory. And I wonder kind of how you thought about as you were writing the book, like how much do I, because at a certain point, people want to know stuff, but they don't really want to learn the science, you know, quasi science of stuff. They want to, they want to understand like kind of the basics of it. So how do you, how do you kind of navigate that? Yeah, so I very intentionally did not want this to feel like an academic textbook. I did not want it to be too long of a book. I, I, did, I wanted to keep the chapters short. Um, I wanted each chapter to feel like something people could take away with and then tell their friends that it was easy enough and understandable enough that they could then tell their friends, oh, I learned this really cool thing about how memory works or I understand now what happens when I have a word on the tip of my tongue. Um, so I think it was 
each chapter I was hoping to give people a little of like, here's, let's, let's look under the hood. Like, here's what happened. Right. This is how memory works. And uh, I didn't, you know, I hope it's not dumbed down so much, but it's, it's, you know, I'm not writing a neurobiological textbook at all. So this is, here's how memory works. Um, here's what happens when it's not working and why. So, and then here's, you know, there's some tips in there for, you know, what helps your memory. So what improves it, you know, things like getting enough sleep and managing stress and um, what can impair it, the difference between Alzheimer's and normal forgetting. But yeah, I think mostly I wanted folks to, to really recognize that, you know, there's not a supplement in this world. Everybody wants the supplement, right? Everybody wants the, the rabbit out of the hat or the magic pill. Everybody wants the pill for like, how do I, how do I stop having a word stuck on the tip of my tongue? Or how can I always, what can I do so that I always remember where I parked my car? And there isn't a supplement out there for this. this our brains are designed in such a way that we're going to forget certain kinds of things regularly forever. And right. I find that reassuring and not frustrating or scary. I find that, and that's my hope. Um, so that is one of the biggest hopes. And then I think, you know, this other, there's an appendix at the back, which is, you know, sort of the, the quick hit list of like what to do to improve your memory day to day. Cause people like that. Um, but there's also this idea again, that it's this memory paradox. Like memory is a really big deal. It's essential for the functioning of almost everything we do and right. our identity, right? Our, our ability to remember, you know, who I've been and who I am. Um, but it's also not such a big deal because it forgets most everything eventually. <laughs> we don't remember last week or last month very well. Um, we only remember a handful of things from the past year really, really well. Um, and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's like a there's a zen there's a zen thing in there which is if you can get there, which I don't feel like I'm you know <laughs> there all the time, but but I have experienced it before, and that is this kind of this kind of sensation of well, I can't remember that is really frustrating. I would love to remember, you know, the the exact thing. Particularly as a you know professional writer, you want to remember the details. You want to be able to report it, you know, accurately. But at the same time, there the, you 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 have this kind of sense of. But I know, like the essence, the essence of what I'm saying. The kind of larger point is there, and and the larger point is there. Not that I'm going to fudge the details. I'll like figure out a way to get the details if I don't have them, you know, in my brain right now. But if you had to choose between kind of having the larger truth, like the the best, the most collaborative perspective, the most kind of overarching perspective on something that happened, uh, and having some sort of like, you know, tunnel vision memory of the actual things that you saw and heard at that moment in time, you would definitely choose the larger picture. I mean, a hundred times out of a hundred, because that's what's so great about being human is kind of having a, that big field of vision. Yes. So our brains are great at remembering the gist of right. what happened or the gist of, you know, a body of knowledge. Like you read, you know, a research paper and you, you get the gist of it. And what's kind of beautiful about living today is that, you know, life's an open book test. You can look up the details, you can right. Google it. And so this isn't, you know, making us dumber in any way, our ability to, 
you know, Google the name or Google the statistic. Um, we weren't holding all of that information in our heads before the internet. This is now a way to expand what we have access to and what we can know and use. And it, our brains, yeah, we, we get the gist of what's going on. Um, I should say there are, there are about a hundred or so people who've been diagnosed on this planet who have highly superior autobiographical memory. These folks remember in great detail every day of their lives from like the age of 10 or so. Um, so they do remember last week's morning shower and what they had for lunch and all the text messages. And um, for, for some folks, this is, a, this is a superpower. So Mary Lou Henner, the actress, has this. Mm. And um, I, I chatted with her several times um, and she's in the book. And I tried to stump her and I couldn't. <laughs> Uh, so she, you know, I'll pick a date, like, you know, uh, August 4th, 1986. And she's like, oh, that was a Saturday. And I went, you know, to visit Johnny Travolta. And we did, like, she has the whole day. Oh, my God. And then wow. she can tell you what ha was happening in the news and what she wore and what the weather was. And um, I, I, I threw in a day that I actually met her in New York City. And she's like, that's when you came to New York to see me. So she's, <laughs> she's got it off. Oh, my God. And um, she loves this. Um, there are folks who have this where it's not the superpower you and I imagine it would be. It's they can't stop reliving the worst days of their lives, mm. full technicolor detail, and they perseverate there. And so it's, you know, lends to sort of paralyzing depression. Um, and then there's the folks, you know, there's a famous man, um, a case study in neuroscience. His name was S. Um, he was studied by uh, Alexander Luria, and he, re he remembered everything and could memorize, you know, massive quantities of texts in a foreign language and mathematical formulas he didn't understand and could regurgitate these in perfect detail years later. Um, but he was somewhat impaired in day, -to day life too, because again, there was no background and foreground, right? Everything was remembered. So what was meaningful was just as remembered as what was inconsequential. And so he was, he was really burdened by this. Yeah, yeah, so I wrote about essence as well. I think remembering well. the gist is really useful for our ability to function. All right. Let me press you on something you said because I want to, I want to, I want to see if you'll you'll stick to it. The is it really true that that not having to remember all the phone numbers that we used to have to remember, like you know, we used to have to remember dozens of phone numbers just to stay in touch with people. I mean, we we'd have you know we'd have little books, but still. And now we don't. We don't remember a single. I can remember maybe one or two phone numbers uh, that, that have you know that are that are old phone numbers like you know that I grew up with. Um, and I don't. So is that is that really okay, or are we kind of getting lazy about some types of memory? And is that a little bit worse? Would it be better if we actually did exercise that part of our memory a little bit more? I love this question. And you and I are old enough that you know I still remember all my childhood friends' phone numbers. And yet I literally don't know my two youngest kids' phone numbers. Like, I don't know what they are. Um, and that just seems like bad parenting right there. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and same thing, I'm talking about myself, but yes, it does. Um, yes. But here's the question I'd ask of you, because a lot of people immediately assume this. Well, this is just bad. This is bad for me. Like, I should be memorizing these things. I used to memorize all kinds of things, like phone numbers. Right. What is it better for what? How right. would are you going to improve your ability to remember other things if you memorize a dozen phone numbers? 
No. Are you gonna like? Are you gonna improve, improve your ability to remember, you know, details of the documentary film you watched or the book you read, or are you gonna be better able to find your phone when it goes missing? If I memorize a dozen phone numbers, it doesn't translate. So yeah, we can. We can. Our brain again. You can memorize a hundred thousand digits of pi if you decided you wanted to. So I can sit down and I can, you know, through repetition and maybe some associations, I can remember, you know, my children's phone numbers and, you know, a dozen others I, with no problem. It doesn't improve my memory ability for memorizing other things whatsoever. And it doesn't really improve my life because I don't need to memorize that I have it. So our phones, um, our smartphones are sort of, you know, an externalization of our memory. It's an augmentation of our memory. And we can we can job share the the job of memory with our phones in all kinds of really cool ways that don't have to be um, fearful for us, you know? Like so like I wear glasses because my eyes need help seeing. We don't you know, we don't think twice about that. Um, I can use Google or my contacts list to remember things for me um, to help aid in, in remembering. And it doesn't impair my memory's ability to do other things. So it's not like, oh, I haven't memorized phone numbers and now I'm just you know, sitting on the couch, staring at the wall, drooling. Like I'm busy doing, I think as a world, we're busier and using our brains more than ever. I mean, we don't have enough downtime probably, right? Right, right. When I was a kid, when we drove in the car, we stared out the window. Right. <laughs> we, we looked at the world. We went right. for walks and just looked at the world. Now right. it's like, well, I should listen to a podcast while I walk. I should right, learn right, right, right. and remember some of that podcast so I can tell you about it. So we're yeah. using our memories a lot memorizing phone numbers doesn't it's not cross-training it's not going to help you in other ways yeah and i i will say i i think hearing you kind of say it that way i i, I think i not only agree with you but I, I would take it a step further is this is just anecdotal but and it's it's just again it's just very just me looking at myself um which is what i do so well uh but um i would say that for my own life you know being now in my mid-50s we can say that um I would say that I think that my life has improved over the, and, and that my skills have improved over the last, say, 25 years or so in that I am wiser because partly I just don't pay as much attention to every little detail. And I think more about the big picture, even in events where I probably should be remembering details. I actually have trained myself to pay attention to more of the kind of big picture. And and I think that's made me um, a more interesting person who maybe can contribute, you know, like on the idea level, a little bit better. And I don't want to paint as a zero sum game, but I think that, I think that that, I don't know, that's a little hunch I have about myself. No, I think you're onto something. So there's the, you know, there's the memory for the stuff we know. So that's your semantic memory. It's the accumulation of knowledge. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't diminish with age. You know, most people tend to think of like, as we age, your memory gets worse. Processing speeds slow down. So you start to be like, uh, uh, sometimes you, 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 feel, you feel like you can see the wheels turning. Like, come on, you can get there, find right. the word, do the thing. 
So that happens, but we don't have an impairment in what we've learned. Like the stuff you know stays with you. And so you have mm. this accumulated body of wisdom as you get older, which is better than ever. You know, you right. know more now than you did when you were 25. And a lot of us, as we get older, we do. We Like you're saying, like you have the memory for the gist. You have mem the memory for concepts and patterns. We get to s sort of see, we've lived enough to be able to, have experienced and notice, oh, there's a similar pattern between this and that, or this concept feels like this concept, or I can now make conclusions based on this body of knowledge that I wouldn't have you know, understood or noticed when I was younger. So um, our memories for the stuff we know accumulate over time, and we, as we age, are more attuned to patterns and concepts than we were when we were right. younger. Yeah, so you right, marry right, right. together, and you. This is why they say you know wisdom comes with age. Um, it, it's in part because of of that. Right. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Wisdom comes with age. Um, so um, let's let's get a little dark now because I'm sure you know your this book is going to sell. I don't know. Let's say two million copies. So just statistically, is that is that a little low? Should I, should I have said ten million? 10 million, let's say 10 million copies. Yeah. Oh, let's say 100 million. Sure. This book is gonna sell 100 million copies. So just statistically, those 100 million people, and that some of them will pass it to another person. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of people will see the book, and then those people know, let's say 2 billion people. So basically the whole world will, will come into contact with this book, as, it, as they should. And I'm getting to my point, um, some of those people statistically will either personally be at the beginning of Alzheimer's disease or know someone, be observing someone. And they'll, so, so the, here's, and, and same with this interview, it'll be seen by, you know, probably a billion people. So let's talk to those people. Um, what, what is a disturbing thing to notice that isn't a normal functioning you know what, what are the things that we look out for where it's like you know if that's happening you should probably go see a, a neurologist you should probably get a couple of basic tests made yeah yeah and you know what one of the things I'm, I'm out there pounding the pavement about is sort of is normalizing brain health and getting people comfortable with talking about brain health so you know we're, we're perfectly happy to go to our our primary care physician and check our heart health, right? We'll get our blood pressure taken, we'll get blood drawn for cholesterol, we'll be talking about to getting a certain number of steps in a day. Um, but we, anything from the neck up, we seem to think we have no influence over. And so, yeah, I think that one of the things I'd love to see people get more comfortable with is being in conversation with their doctor about like, hey, here are the kinds of things I'm, I'm forgetting and, yeah. and like this is what my cognitive health feels like today. Right. Okay. And then next appointment, we can compare this year versus last year. So what are the kinds of things that, that could be potentially concerning? So I talk about tip of the tongue in the book. There's a whole chapter on it because this plagues all of us, right? Like, oh, what's his name? What's the name of that movie my friend recommended on Netflix? Um, tip of the tongue is really common for all of us, whether you're 20 or 60. It tends to be pronouns. So just neurobiologically speaking, pronouns are like in little neurological cul-de-sacs. 
and really hard to get to ultimately, um, as opposed to just a common word, which is kind of like tons of intersections in the middle of Main Street downtown, easy to come by. Um, so if you're having lots of tip of the tongues for names of cities, book titles, movie titles, actors, a person's name, don't sweat it. But if you're starting to go like, oh, the, what's the thing, the name of the thing I write with, you know, the thing um, I, I write words on the paper with, a pen? Yes. Like if you're, if words that are common go missing a lot <laughs> for you, and like this happens to our friend Greg O'Brien all day long. You know, he can't remember the name of, of the stuff that we use. You know, what's the name, the thing I drink water from, what's that called? The glass? Right, right. Yeah. So if that's happening, I, you bring that to your doctor. That's concerning. Um, if you lose your keys and your phone, like that's probably an attention problem, a distraction problem, not a memory problem. But if you find your keys or your phone and you think, like, what, what, am I, what do I do with this? What is this for? Why do I need this? Or if you look at your phone and you suddenly are like, I don't know how to work this. If you have that glitch moment where you're, that's more concerning. That's different than just misplacing it due to attention, most likely. Um, people talk about like, oh, I can't remember where I parked my car. That's normal. And again, likely an attention issue. Um, if it's something more concerning, like Greg, our friend Greg O'Brien will not recognize his car. He'll be standing in front of it and it won't compute to his brain that that belongs to him or he won't remember how he got there. This mm -hmm. happens to folks with Alzheimer's. I've heard this over and over again. They walk out into a parking lot and think, I don't remember how I got here. So that's, a, you know, the first thing to go in Alzheimer's, the first thing under attack in your brain is the hippocampus, right. which I mentioned is this part of your brain that's necessary for the formation of new consciously held memories. So if this part of the brain is under attack, you can imagine that that information that's recently happened won't, won't go into a lasting memory. So I can't remember having driven to the store because that happened a few minutes ago and I really am a little fuzzy on like, how did I get here? Or I'll repeat, so if you start repeating yourself a lot because you don't remember that you told someone something. Right. Someone's right. saying, you're repeating yourself a lot and you don't remember, you're not aware of this. Like, I don't remember telling you this. Um, again, this is a conversation to bring to your, your primary care physician and it, treat it like heart health people. It doesn't mean like, oh, if I admit I've got a memory problem, I'm going to fall off the cliff into end-stage Alzheimer's tomorrow. It's like, again, like heart disease. We have ways we can prevent. We have ways that we can prolong the distance and, and push Alzheimer's way off into the distance by doing the right things, right, for your brain health. So we know that heart-healthy Mediterranean diet can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's and dementia by half a lot, right? If we had a pharmaceutical, if I had a pill for you and said, here, this is going to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's by a half, you would take it. Right. So we know sleeping seven to nine hours a night is hugely important. And I've got a whole chapter in my book as to why. Because I think, again, part of the book is like, I can tell you, it's super important for you to get sleep every night. This is going to help you. It's going to help you lock in the, the memories of stuff you created today. Um, it's going to help you learn new stuff tomorrow and it's going to prevent Alzheimer's. Like, okay, but I kind of can let that, I don't know, I can kind of space out on that it, unless you tell me why. Like, so in the book, I said, this is what your brain's doing while you sleep. Right. That helps. That helps. So you know that every time you can give yourself seven to nine hours of sleep, it's like, ah, I 
just prevented Alzheimer's a little bit. Like every night. Absolutely. Like, don't worry about the years you haven't slept. Because that's already (laughs) water under the bridge. If you don't have Alzheimer's today, that means that like you're you're still okay, right? You haven't, you know, all of that's already done. Like, what are you going to do now? So, um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I will say there was a period of my life a long time ago where I thought sleep was for suckers. And I just thought I had to, you know, I, 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 I like felt guilty about getting too much sleep, which is so silly. I'm glad that I I've, a lot I've, of people still feel that way. I just posted yeah. something recently to social media about the importance of sleep. It was World Sleep Day. And uh, a lot of comments were people saying, like, I get nine hours of sleep a night and I feel so guilty about that. Right. right. And there, we as a culture, we are like that. We're like, are you getting enough done? Like, are you are you lazy? Are you you know, if you're sleeping, you're lazy. And it's like, like well, let's spend the last we only have like two or three minutes, but let's spend <laughs> let's spend one or two of them talking a little bit. People need to understand sleep is not like wasted time. We again, we are designed. We all every living thing, every animal needs sleep. Why? Well, a big part of the reason is that our brains are consolidating these memories, right? We need that time to keep our brain in functioning order from day to day. Yeah. I mean, so this, this clicked for me, and this is a lot of Matthew Walker's work. It's why would all living things have evolved to devote so much time to sleeping, right? Like we've spent years of our lives asleep at this point at our age, right? Right, right, right. At like 16 cumulative years of sleep so <laughs> right. it's like it's not a it's not a state of doing nothing that's the thing like we're not conscious for it but our body is super busy doing things that are essential to the health and functioning of every organ system in our body including our brains so we need it to consolidate memories we need it to clear away the metabolic debris that accumulated during the business of being awake so that we don't get alzheimer's um it's vital to your mental health cardiovascular health not getting cancer so it's i think it really helps for folks to understand like oh my brain and body are busy cleaning up and doing business while i sleep necessary business while i sleep so it's not it's not a a, a state of unconscious nothingness right absolutely get more sleep and don't feel guilty about it feel decadent about it feel like you've just done something great for yourself and just do that every day and and like you said don't worry about the the sleep you've missed uh, in the past that's we've all done stuff that that is stupid but we can be smarter and wiser as we go on yeah, um, no more we do better yep Lisa, this has been such a, a privilege to talk to you for an hour straight. We made it almost an hour without mentioning Rudy Tanzi. I'm just throwing his name out there because I've never not talked to you for anything like this and not talked about Rudy. So hilarious. Um, and uh, and I hope this book sells the, those hundred million copies that it deserves to sell. And uh, and I can't wait to see what your next one is is, is on. And we'll uh, we'll hopefully talk about that one too. Thank you so much. Can't wait to see you in real life someday soon. Yeah, for sure. Someday soon. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email to podcasts at c-span.org.